0: broadcast live on resonance 104.4 fm i am james butler 1.5 to stay alive that is the message we got from the report of the international panel on climate change and indeed the message that we've had from activists in the global south for some years how do we do it is it time to break the law and what might a world no longer ravenously feeding on carbon look like uh, to discuss these questions and more, I am joined in the studio this week by Guardian columnist, author and prophetic voice in the wilderness, George Mombio, who has long been farther cited than many in the media class about the predicament we're in. And uh, has written extensively about how we might st- save ourselves and many other animals from extinction. George, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. <laughs> I want to start with the recent launch at a demonstration in Trafalgar Square of something, an organization, a movement, uh, a politics, calling itself Extinction Rebellion. You spoke at that demonstration. I know you've been involved. Just tell me what it's about.
1: Mm. Well, what attracted me to it um, is that its aims are commensurate with the scale of the crisis we face. I mean, we face an existential crisis. It's not just climate breakdown, though that's the most obvious aspect of it. It's total ecological breakdown. Uh, All the Earth systems are heading in in, in the same direction. Um, right over the cliff Mm. Um, as a result of our massive increase in resource use driven by capitalism, which drives completely unnecessary consumerism, um, controlled by corporations who insist that their shareholder value is more important than the survival of the living planet and the survival of humanity. (laughs) And what I've seen in response is a whole lot of tinkering, is lots of NGOs, conservation NGOs, environment NGOs, people within the media, people within government saying, well, we can just do a little tweak here and a little tweak there and maybe have a bit of corporate social responsibility and perhaps it's not a good idea to roll back that regulation and things. God's sake, guys, this is a planetary emergency. What are we doing? Mm. Where is everybody? And when Extinction Rebellion launched, I thought, oh, here they are. (laughs) This is what I've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. And... I was just really excited. Even the name itself, Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, that, that says what we need to do. And then to hear that the aim is to get hundreds of people arrested, to show how serious we are, you know, to show this is a serious issue, to take non-violent, disruptive, direct action, to shut down some of the big corporations who are doing the damage to us and to the rest of the living world, Obviously, shut them down temporarily, um, but make a huge statement in doing so to take direct action in defense of the living world this This is exactly what we need to do, and the reason we need to do it is that it 's only when you 're prepared to show that you are up for making a sacrifice that other people see this is the big issue that you say it is because if if you 're saying it 's a planetary emergency unless we completely change course, we're all going to die, and I'll carry on sitting behind my laptop and writing articles, or um, perhaps we need to send a postcard to our MP, then there's cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. uh, between the, the claim you've made and the action you're taking to, to prevent that from happening. But if you say, it's a planetary emergency, and so some of us are prepared to go to prison... In order to try to stop it then people sit up and say oh right it must be serious Mm. and this has been fundamental to successful campaigning throughout history you know not just suffragettes and civil rights and anti-apartheid and and um the uh, indian salt marches uh, marches and all, all the rest that we're so familiar with but you know going back centuries and centuries whether it's the diggers and the levelers um you know whether it's the religious revolutions you know you look at the early christians people took them seriously because they were prepared in those cases to put their lives on the line as, as well as their liberty on the line and that's what lights The flame.
0: So what did you make of... So I wasn't able to be at the demonstration working as Mm. (laughs) these things go. Um, Oh, oh work. (laughs) Yes. We need to sort that out as well. Um, What what was your sense? Because I saw some of the speeches um, afterwards. Mm. Um, What was your sense of the crowd who turned out Mm. and how it fit into the scope and the history of climate activism in the UK?
1: Yeah. Well, it was really interesting because it was a Wednesday morning and you wouldn't expect many people to turn out. Uh, but um, there was over a thousand and every single person seemed completely committed. We sat down in the road outside Parliament. It was Parliament Mm. Square, by the way, not Trafalgar Square. Um, uh, But, you know, this is the media. (laughs) (laughs) But we we, we sat down in the road for ten minutes And an hour and a half later, the police started clearing us because Mm -hmm. it was basically, there were so many of us because just about everyone at the demo sat down in the road. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a very strong sense of strength, of solidarity, of common purpose. But what I found really interesting is that nearly all the protests that I've been involved with, and this goes back a very long way, sort of 30 years of professional troublemaking, really, um, um, have been led... um, almost entirely by young people and in the 80s and 90s you know when i was um, first active it was just about all young people doing it particularly the sort of 1990s road Mm. protests and stuff Um, and it was great because we had all that energy and time which um older people often don't have Um, but we kept making obvious mistakes because we weren't learning from previous generations who had done this stuff before But what was very striking about um, this first protest, which was just a taster, really, for what what is happening, uh, what's going to happen um, starting next week, um, was that um, there was this mixture of veteran activists and young people. And it seemed to be a very productive mixture to me. You had some very young people, including people of school age, mixing with some people in their second boob of youth (laughs) such as myself um and and there is that sense that actually you know number one we are going to learn from each other because because the older people were learning from the young people as well as the other way around uh we're not going to keep reinventing the wheel we're not going to make obvious mistakes which have been made in the past but we've got this incredible energy and determination um driven by young and old here which I think is going to see us through. Um, among the speakers was this amazing Swedish girl, Greta Thunberg. She's 15 years old. She's tiny. She looks about eight. You know, she's And and she's got Asperger's. And so she's quite socially awkward, but she takes to the stage and it's like she takes off. She's an incredibly inspiring, amazing person. And she says, look, I've got Asperger's. And so we see the world in black and white terms. Um, but here's a black and white issue and so it needs a black Mm. and white response Mm. you know they are literally destroying our life support systems so why am i still at school just part of the system and so she started this school strike which Mm -hmm. is now um spread to other parts of the world um, keep trying to encourage my daughters huh? and <laughs> why can't you be one of those nice kids who bunks off school? <laughs> Look at you in your smart uniform, It's, it's disgusting've got <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a very good fun <laughs> but so do you get a
0: sense? I mean because so for, like many many moons ago, um I was present at the early climate camps these kind of uh, acts or, or kind of that 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 also sort of strategically saw a use for. Uh, direct action and law breaking, especially right. So to go because of the <clears throat> scale of the emergency, and it. I would. I wouldn't claim it didn't have any success. It certainly did. Not enough. Um, so, so what lessons do you think uh, are are there to learn from that history of, of mm. climate mm. action?
1: Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean that was very much part of the continuum of um, really significant action that I've seen. Over the course of decades now, I mean, I, my, I first became involved in a big way in the early nineties, um, fighting the roads programme. The um, uh, uh, first Thatcher and then Major um, had declared that they were building the biggest road building programme since the Romans, and they'd put down twenty three billion pounds for it, which in those days was real money, mm-hmm. and. Um, and they were basically building motorways by stealth across the whole country. They were saying, um, oh, we're going to bypass your village. And, oh, we'll bypass your village as well. And we're by-. Do we really need a six-lane bypass? Oh, yeah, you do. You really need a six-lane mm-hmm. bypass. Oh, that it connects with next door's bypass. You know, and it basically it's trying to build motorways across the whole country mm-hmm. without ever saying they were building a motorway. Uh, it was just shocking. And it was all driven by the construction companies. and um, and, and we fought that and we won. Uh, they spent $4 billion of their $23 billion by the time we stopped them, and then the whole program was brought to a halt. Mm-hmm. It was quite amazing. Now, we had a defined aim in that case. We said, <clears throat> um, this is what we want to stop. And we weren't trying to stop the whole world. We were trying to stop the road, road program. That made it easier for us unfortunately now we kind of have to stop the whole world <laughs> you know it's we 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 need to have the much bigger aim and one of the tensions um you know, within this this movement as within others is between the sheer scale of what the aim needs to be and the strategic means by which you might reach that and i was at a meeting um uh extinction rebellion meeting last night which was sort of like half meeting half press conference um and I and someone else, well, I was so I had a foot in both camps. I was sort of uh, introduced a meeting, but I was also a journalist asking questions. And we both asked questions which were quite similar, saying, well, you know, you've got these huge aims, like decarbonize the whole economy by 2025. Basically, government come out with your hands in the air. Mm. Um, don't you need some intermediate aims? Don't you need um, some halfway houses so we can claim some victories along the way and keep people interested and stuff and this incredible activist a 20 year old she stood up and said what are you asking me to compromise on here you're asking me to compromise on my life on my future and the future of my whole generation and the future of all the other life on earth because that's what you're saying you know if you're saying we can't go all that way we can't do that huge thing you're saying it's all over Hmm. And the whole lot is going to slide off the cliff. And uh, you know, she she did it beautifully. She really brought us up. You know, and because I was, you know, I, I could totally see the need for the big picture and the big aim. But I was also quite persuaded that you you need to have the strategic um, middle ground there as well. But I came away thinking, no, you just got to have the big aim. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, that does make it very difficult in campaigning terms. Because it means you have to find a way of making that aim seem real enough to people that they're going to get out there and support it in huge numbers and to with a great degree of dedication. It,
0: that, that kind of problem, that, that problem with the scale of the aim has beset the climate movement, I think, mm. pretty often mm. over the last few decades. Partly because the question that's posed by it is so fundamental, so all-encompassing. And... I think the response has often been, you know, uh, to sort of double down on urgency to say, you know, this is, you know, this is an emergency, you know, in, yeah, in, in yeah. that sense. Um, and it's interesting to me that the response of of the right these days. So from my, since I was looking on the Guido Fawkes website <laughs> last night, <laughs> and what was interesting is that, never good for your yeah, mental. Yeah, no, really awful. Really, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've I haven't delved into the comments section, mm. um, but he, he, you know, or whoever was writing it, sort of put together all of these. You know, we have ten years to save the planet. We have, you know, it mm. was gore in twen- two thousand eight, so a decade mm. ago, or from from before. So, so, so there is obviously this kind of rhetorical drive to put it in these comprehensible emergency terms, and you know, obviously, other than giving the rights and talking points when, you know, we happen to still be alive ten yeah, years yeah, later, yeah, yeah. Um, there, there does seem to me to be a question here, and I know you've written about it recently, about that tension, I guess, between, you know, guilt or, uh, you know, urgency or alarm or panic um, and love, right? Mm. So, because the, the, mm. it's another side of your writing is like mm. a deep appreciation mm for the natural world, mm. um, you know, and, and with all of its complexities. Um, so so how, do, how, how does the climate movement balance that
1: kind of tension? Yeah, it's, um, it is a really <laughs> difficult one. It's an incredibly difficult one to navigate um, because we know from various studies that just pressing the panic button um, actually sends people often into the opposite direction oh, right, well, I'm just going to look after myself in that case. I'm going to become a prepper. Mm. The extreme um, version of that, or it's just right, I'm just going to earn as much money as I can so my children are going to be all right. that, 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 That sort of thing and that defensive reaction. So somehow we have to find the balance between telling it like it is because I think it is morally wrong not to do so. It's morally wrong to downplay the scale of what we're facing which is why I get so angry with the BBC and the David Attenborough programmes and the rest of it which create this completely false impression of the health of the living Mm. planet Um, and quite deliberately don't tell it like it is don't tell us the whole story of what's happening to the amazing creatures they're showing us so we have to be honest about it and brave about it and tell the whole story but we have to do so in a way that fills people with courage uh, rather than fear i was going to say hope but actually <laughs> hope is like um you know straight away i see the word false attached yeah, to the front, yeah. of, front of it but the, the courage to see that there is well number one there is a vision of a better world that we could reach and number two we think it's worth the fight to try to get there now i think there is a vision of a better world i mean i i i'm not one of these people who says well we just have to accept Um, decline or collapse and work out how to live with it Um, I understand their position but I I revolt against it I think that is completely the wrong approach number one because actually we don't know what's around the corner not just in terms of the scale and speed of the issue but in terms of the scale and speed of potential solutions I just recently came across this extraordinary technology producing food from electricity as opposed to the photosynthesis pathway, this completely different pathway, electrolyzing water with solar, um, solar electricity in deserts to produce hydrogen, which hydrogen-oxygenating bacteria feed on, producing protein, requiring one twenty-thousandth of the land area currently required to produce the same amount of protein in the most efficient way agriculture can. And, you know, if, if that can be rolled out fast... Um, then we could be looking at this massive reforestation rewilding ecological mm. restoration, and a huge drawdown of carbon dioxide mm. from the atmosphere mm. so now, you know whether it can be rolled out in that speed that time frame i, I don 't know i can 't tell you but but that it 's got that potential and and so you, you, you sort of throw your hands in the air and just say, oh, we can't do anything, it's all hopeless. And then suddenly you see something like that and think, oh, God, if we can do that, um, and we can unlock this, and, which then unlocks the mm-hmm. next thing, um, and we've got this enormous potential for massive change, then every single thing is worth fighting for. We don't give up on a single species because one day there might be a huge area of land for them to expand back into. Um, and and so the, the whole struggle becomes worthwhile and so it's keeping that stuff in mind which is in a way more than hope it's a sort of it's it's a radical optimism it's it's you know while we can be pessimistic about the stuff surrounding us right now is that big vision of a completely different world which we keep in mind all the time Mm. which makes the fight worthwhile it makes everything worth saving it makes everything uh, worth contesting as well. And as soon as you can see a picture of something really amazing, then the sense of urgency of wanting to clear away all the bad stuff which stands between you and that picture becomes all the greater. Mm-hmm. If you have the standard environmental message which says, follow us and the world will be slightly less crap than it would otherwise have been, it's <laughs> not exactly inspiring, is it? Mm. But it's uh, follow us and the world could be so much better than it is today. Then you, you find a big body of people who are prepared to say, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm going to lay down my working time, mm. my liberty maybe one day even my life for this goal.
0: This is, it's, such a, it's such a striking difference from the sort of caricature, uh, sort of dour left environmentalist. Mm. He says, you know, the world's going to hell in a handcart. Um, mm. You know... Uh, don 't uh, don 't use straws or yeah, know, yeah, yeah whatever all of yeah. that stuff um, and it's really it 's really striking because because one can imbibe that sort of caricature even while not believing it, mm. so it 's always I think impressive to hear people talk about actually the, the radical potential mm. of technology. Because, I mean, technology to me is uh, I, 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 you know, I, I mean, I'm sitting here speaking into a piece yeah. of technology, you know, or, or, you know looking at my notes on, on a laptop, you know, full of rare earths and mm-hmm. that's designed mm. to fall mm. apart in five years. Mm. You know, believe mm. me, I see the nightmare side of technology. Mm. And that, that nightmare side of technology has always been there in left analyses mm. of the way in which capitalism works, right? But I think it, it you know, it's so... Uh, it's so important, it's so striking to hear that actually, you know, there are these technologies that don't yeah. require, yeah. Um, you know, this cycle of planned obsolescence and this yeah. cycle of continual consumption, yeah. which I guess brings us to that 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 kind of the the question here, which is capitalism, mm. right? And and you know, it's it's you know. Because the thing that's standing in the way of the actuation of mm-hmm. these technologies, to 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 a very great extent, is the fact they don't make any money. I mean, there was a piece I think in the Economist recently that was saying, "Oh well, you know, a hundred percent renewable energy will never work because it won't be profitable." Yeah, yeah, and that that to me is you know, it's it's I can't I can't wrap my head around mm-hmm. I know. this. But it, it does, it, you know, it does strike me that perhaps, and you know, having watched some of the Extinction Rebellion stuff, like there is you know, a, a side of, of this movement that is very consciously anti-technological, very kind of, you know, that draws from quite a, a you know, a, a primitivist critique of, mm. of capitalism. And I wonder, you know, I wonder if, if you see that tension within mm.
1: the movement. Yeah, no, there is that tension. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm sceptical but excited by certain technologies because I don't believe that by themselves they're going to change mm. stuff. I believe in conjunction with political and economic change they 're going to change stuff, and you know there are two traps to fall into: one is all we need is technology techno fixes will sort everything out, which is the eco modernist position yeah. and and it 's sort of deliberately. Not challenging the system. In fact, it's doubling down on the system. It's talking about green growth, clean growth, both of which are contradictions in mm-hmm. ter- in, in terms of like like clean coal. Mm-hmm. You know, we now have a government department, government minister for energy and clean growth. Yeah well, this person can't possibly exist because <laughs> there is no such thing. Um, and of course, you know, growth is at the heart of capitalism. Capitalism is driving this. And, and we have to be brave enough to acknowledge that fact and to say, we need a different system, which you know, as, as another of our projects is working on with many others, what that different system looks like um, in, in economic terms and in political terms as well. Um, but the um, but the other trap is to say "Oh, technology has nothing to offer us at all. Um, we have to go back to the land or in some cases um, with with certain anarcho-primitivists, we have to go back to before agriculture altogether. Um, now, you know, I can also sort of see that that can be attractive to a certain mindset. And, you know, I love living the raw feral existence when I get the chance, yeah. um, you know, but um, it's generally... As a break from... Yes, my, about three well, days. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> um, but when you consider that in the Mesolithic, when there was 50% more land area in Britain um, and a huge amount more wildlife and ecosystems and the rest of it, according to one estimate, the maximum population here was 5,000 in Britain, then you realise that that's not going to be an answer to anything. You know, we have to find ways of living which are going to sustain human life, not talking about some massive plague which is going to wipe everyone out. Um, Hopefully no one wants that, but at the same time sustain the rest of life on Earth. And we desperately need technologies to help with that. And what's so exciting about this um, food from electricity idea, um, uh, so sort of creating this far greater efficiency, is that it suddenly releases almost all the land's area for recovery. I mean, in principle, if you do it in desert regions with very high insulation, in other words, an awful lot of sunlight, and so you can produce the electricity cheaper um, than solar elsewhere, you could produce all the world's protein in an area smaller than Ohio. Wow. I mean, this is is just extraordinary. I mean, it's it's a complete transformation of prospects. So it's that sort of thing... Mm -hmm. Which we keep in mind while saying, "Yeah," but at the same time, we've got to fight the system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, having the current system using those technologies isn't going to solve stuff nearly as well or as fast as a different system using those technologies.
0: I want to come on just shortly to to you know a, a way of, a sort of broader way of thinking about politics, but I want to keep just to the just to the last two years because you uh, have been. I think pleased by the transformation in the Labour Party. Mm. Um, but I think, like me, uh, you might also feel that perhaps the party has got nowhere near serious enough about climate change. Yeah. Um, you know, I was very pleased for John MacDonald to be opposing the new runway mm. um, in his constituency, but not not just on nimby grounds, right? No, no. Um, but... But as a way of joined up thinking across the Labour Party, it doesn't seem to be there yet. So what do you make of the Last Manifesto and you yep. know, the, the way that the party has
1: been approaching yeah. it? Well, I thought the Last Manifesto was a massive improvement on what we'd seen for <laughs> the last 30 years, really, from anyone apart from the Green Party, mm-hmm. which has always had good manifestos. Um, it, it was a real step forward, but it was still pretty 20th century Keynesian um, and doesn't really speak to a lot of our 21st century crises, Mm. And, you know, the problem with Keynesianism um, in in these terms is not just that it's much harder to do now that all the capital controls and foreign exchange controls have gone and we never had the balanced international trading system with an international trading currency that Keynes envisaged. Exactly, exactly. And it was kind of it was flying on one wing from, from, from the very beginning and and the sort of crises which besetted in the late 1970s as a result were almost inevitable. It's not just that, but that at the heart of Keynesian economics is stimulus spending to sustain a steady rate of economic growth. Um, and sure, they try not to let it get beyond a certain point, although that bit always gets always gets forgotten. But, you know, Keynes was very clear that economic growth should be at a a steady rate but not it shouldn't go wild otherwise you create a boom bust economy but that the idea is you've got to keep stimulating consumption which stimulates employment which is just fine when you live on an infinitely growing planet but um, sadly the planet um, that we live on is a finite sphere and isn't growing and its resources aren't growing Um, and if the economy continues to grow within that finite planet it bust through planetary boundaries. Um, This isn't even economics, this is physics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is very, very simple stuff, which is so simple that economists are incapable of grasping it. Um, And um, and we've already transgressed some of our key planetary boundaries. um, And um, we're heading very close to a lot of the other ones. Um, And yet, yeah, 3% growth, which is what everyone seems to aim for, that means doubling the economy in 24 years. Mm. So if we've already broken through those planetary boundaries and then we want to double it all, and then we double it again after another 24 years, so that's four times the economic activity we have today in 48 years, uh, it it simply can't be done. I mean, it physically can't be done uh, because this whole notion that we can decouple Um, economic activity from material resource consumption just does not stand up. There's nowhere on earth has Mm -hmm. yet done it. And there's even the theoretical possibility of absolute decoupling is not there. Even relative decoupling, you know, so so less resource use per unit of Mm -hmm. economic growth rather than less overall Mm -hmm. resource use is only demonstrated in a few places at a few times. It's not uh, a general, Mm -hmm. um, not a universal feature. of of economic growth in capitalist systems, um, or indeed in any system. And so, basically, growth is the driving problem here, but a Keynesian system, which is growth-based, is not going to be a solution to our 21st century crises. So, in that respect, Labour has been, at any rate, backward-looking. I think that might be changing. I think there's a lot of interesting new thinking going on within Labour. I think they're still really weak on environmental issues. Can you name the Labour environment spokesperson? No. No. No <laughs> no one can. I mean, it's, it's quite a remarkable thing. I speak to seasoned environmentalists all the time, and, and it's like a game I played. N- name the environment spokesperson. I have to remind myself once a week, because she's just not there. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's Sue Heyman. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she's a perfectly decent person, but I never hear a squeak mm-hmm. from her. Mm-hmm. And... You get everyone knows what Michael Gove is doing for the Conservatives uh, with his environmental policies, which always sound quite good and then never happen. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's making the whole running mm-hmm. almost unopposed. Mm. And then weird things happen, like with the agriculture bill, um, where Gove is now way to the left of Labour in terms of their policy because um, um, the Labour shadow um, uh, d- department. Uh, basically got completely nobbled by the national farmers union and has come up with this thing oh we need to keep paying landowners huge amounts of money to be landowners and it's like what on earth is going on here (laughs) it's really crazy and what what it is is that it's under-resourced labor hasn't put enough time and trouble into making sure it's across environmental issues um it's not really thinking hard enough about it it's it's it remains the craggy island of politics hmm. that is the problem you know that that for years defra the De- environment department has been the punishment posting of politics is where all the defrocked priest gets <laughs> <laughs> and um, so and 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 while that sort of changed a bit actually within the conservative party it hasn't changed in labor hmm. and and it really needs to change fast yeah. and, and i know that Within the Labour front bench there are some people who recognise that that's a big problem and they mm. want to change it. So Godspeed that. Let it happen as quickly as possible. Mm.
0: It does strike me there's a problem with some of the trade unions as well on, on this stuff. And and it may just be that the that that the Labour Party, the political Labour Party, hasn't made a convincing argument about job retention and the, you know, transition. Mm. Um, and I think that can be done better. Yeah. But it was so depressing to see, you know, the the you know GMB coming out for a you know, new runway, and oh, this, God, you know, this, this kind like, of stuff. It, it, yeah, it, it, I like, find it very difficult, and so it, I wonder, actually, on that stuff, what what you see, maybe the the role um, of of the Green Party, in 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 you know, it,
1: if the Labour Party has moved to the left, you
0: know. Where does the Green Party find itself in in, in this respect?
1: It is a difficult place for them because I'm a massive admirer of them. They've they've been incredible for a long time. They've got the most fantastic representatives, Caroline Lucas being Mm -hmm. the obvious one, but there are a lot of other really great people in the Green Party. And their policies are what we need in the 21st century, and they're way ahead. But in our ridiculous first-past-the-post system, um They really struggle to get a footing in politics that they deserve, <clears throat> and so I find myself throwing in my lot with labour now, um though i 'm a natural green um simply because i want desperately want labour to win the next election yeah. um so that we can actually have some sensible conversations about everything, whereas at the moment it 's just impossible because yeah. you know the whole country is in the service of money and power um, the big business says. Um, uh, it wants something, and it just gets it, mm. um, and and we that needs to change on every single level. It's crippling us. It's destroying mm. us. You know, why haven't we got decent housing? Why do we have runaway inequality? Why, in the midst of planetary catastrophe, are we building new roads and 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 having fast track fracking going mm. on? This is just utter madness. Coming there there from is this, this huge government. disjunction
0: between the electoral cycle, you know, these five-year mm. parliaments and the way in which people yeah. campaign for that stuff and, you know, the scope of this problem. It's one of the reasons, you know, I'll lay my cards on the table. You know, in, in, a, in a Corbyn Labour government I would want Caroline Lucas yeah, in there yeah, as Minister yeah, for Climate yeah, Change. I think yeah. that would be hugely, hugely Actually, beneficial. That and hugely would be important. a
1: really amazing thing if, you know, if, if Labour wins a majority but says, despite winning a majority, we're going to form a coalition with the Greens. Mm. I think that would be a really uh, bold and exciting move and then make her environment secretary. Wouldn't that be beautiful? That yeah. would be just, a lovely <laughs> and that would actually fill their gap. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm going to suggest this to them. <laughs> good. I might good. even write a column yes, about it.
0: Yes, you've uh, seeded a great idea. Thank you. Um, I, w- I want to move on and, and talk a bit about um, some of the wider thinking you've been doing over the last few years, and especially there was the book I think a couple of years now, uh, a couple of years ago now, after the wreckage, which I thought was really striking as an intervention on the way in which we think about politics and think about the large scale things. And one of the things that, that comes out of it is, uh, is a real attention to the kind of stories we tell about how politics happens, about how political change happens. Uh, maybe you can just tell me a bit about why narrative is so important to you. And just, just because I think sometimes political operatives and political specialists sometimes see politics as kind of zero-sum technical game, which is ultimately mm-hmm. moved by, by money. It's ultimately moved by you know, the economic bottom line. And sure, I mean, I don't think that accounts for great historical mm, mm. Uh, moments of revolution. But, but, but you know, there, I guess there are two critical charges to it. Like one, that it's airy-fair or unimportant. I think that's a substantial mm. one. But two, that it can tend towards a kind of mystification.
1: Mm. Yeah. Pe- people are so naive about this, I think. You know, it's just, a, it, we only need to operate at the level of policy. But actually, what you need to operate is at a much deeper level. And I became very interested in this because I realized that the reason we're stuck with neoliberalism, despite its evident and imminent failure, um, as demonstrated by the 2008 crisis, but everything else as well, um, is that we haven't produced a new story with which to replace it. Um, And we are creatures of narrative. We, We use story as a shortcut to understanding the world because there's too much data coming at us to do it as a scientist or a mathematician would try to understand the world Um, even in early evolutionary history ecosystems are tremendously complex things social relations are tremendously complex things even then the human brain was a tremendously complex thing if you try to interpret the world by saying this stream of data is telling me that this stream of data is telling me the other and there's this and there's that and I need to you you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning you would just be paralyzed Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. um, the overwhelming quantity of stuff coming at you so we develop this thing called narrative to try to allow us to navigate our way through the world and it provides these intellectual shortcuts and allows us to feel I'm part of this story. Is this story progressing in the right way? If so, I feel good. If not, I feel bad. So let's align myself with the story. And it's this this way. you sort of just, you know, if you look at some of the very interesting neuroscience behind this, the way that we use emotional shortcuts as ways of achieving rational decisions, you'll see that the story plays an absolutely crucial role there. So I started getting interested in this and then with the help of this really fascinating thinker, George Marshall, I began to see that it's not just that stories in general are crucial to politics uh, and political and even religious transformation, it's one story structure in particular. That has worked again and again across thousands of years. Now, you'll hear people saying there are three basic plots, or five mm. basic plots, or seven, or nine. It's always an odd number for some reason. <laughs> um, but, and, 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 you know, there are a number of basic narrative structures, but it's this one that works every single time. And I have failed to come up with a single successful political or religious transformation which hasn't used this narrative structure. And it's what I call the restoration story. And it goes like this. Disorder afflicts the land caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero of the story, who might be one person or a group of people, confronts those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds, overthrows them and restores order to the land. It's the Lord of the Rings story. Mm -hmm. It's a Narnia story. It's a Harry Potter story. It's the Bible story. But it's also every single successful political story that's mm. been told. And after the Great Depression, John Maynard Keynes sat down and wrote his general theory, which fits to a T the restoration story narrative. When that fell apart, the neoliberals stepped forward with their story that they'd been working on for 30 years, fits to a T the restoration story narrative. When neoliberalism fell apart in 2008, we came forward with, oh... Um, Well, uh, we don't really know uh, what story we want. Uh, We just don't like that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, that stuff you were doing, that's all really bad. So maybe have a bit less of it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Or maybe go back to Keynesianism, um, despite all the evident problems, or something... Mm -hmm. We, hadn't had a new, we didn't have a new story because we never recognised the need for it. We'd fallen into this technocratic managerialism which just said, oh, you need to feed people a few policies and you need to balance that faction against this faction and uh, pay off that interest group and the rest of it. And uh, people who just don't realise what the driving forces of politics are. And it's not a particular leader or a particular party even that changes politics. It is a particular narrative that then cuts across political lines. And if you look at Keynesianism in its heyday, as Richard Nixon is alleged to have said, we are all Keynesians now. <laughs> Everyone became a Keynesian. didn't matter if you were Labour, Conservative, Democrat, Republican. Um, you you were basically a Keynesian because it became the common sense, because it was a narrative that made sense. It made sense of the world for us. And so it became the common sense. Mm-hmm. And then when neoliberalism was at its heyday, they all became neoliberals. Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, that right across the political spectrum, it was the new." common sense so the question is where's the new common sense yeah. today and the new common sense comes from the new narrative mm-hmm. we must tell mm-hmm.
0: and there's an and, and and one can develop that narrative you think without you know mystifying no, the no. truth.
1: it has to be based. i mean of course narrative can be used very successfully to bamboozle and to mystify but you know what's the point you know it, it, unless we tell a story which is rooted in the real world, which is based on fact, but still touches people at the core of their being, then we might as well give up and do something else. You know, go and take up golf or something because <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, that because is actually one of the, the worst, worst possible yeah. fate, fate. But, um, but, but, it, you know, not that drastic. But yeah. take up, yeah. take up chess or something <laughs> um, because um, you, you know we we are in it to actually pull ourselves out of this disastrous course that we're on and create a world which is fit for all its people and the rest of the living world. For this, we need new stories. So what I've tried to tell in in Out of the Wreckage is the new story, and it goes a bit like this. Disorder afflicts the land caused by the powerful and nefarious forces of neoliberalism. The billionaires who supported it, the bankers, the corporations who poured their resources into it, the think tanks, the academic departments, the journalists, the government advisers who promoted it. And in doing so, the neoliberal doctrine told them we're going to treat society as if it does not exist, as if there is no such thing as society, just individuals and their families. And we will atomize and rule. We will divide people up. We will stop people seeing themselves as citizens, get them to see themselves as consumers and therefore prevent them from acting politically. But we, the heroes of the story, the ordinary people of the land, confronted with this devastating system which alienates us from each other, alienates us from the living world, alienates us from ourselves, will fight back by creating a new politics based in community local communities but also proliferating political communities at the national level which will create what we call a politics of belonging which places us back in the political economy places us back with our feet on the ground places us back in a thriving culture participatory culture which develops into thick networks of people working together and in doing so we restore order to the Mm. land
0: I think there's something so important, so striking about that story. I, you know, it, it you know, it really, it, it feels like the kind of thing that can empower. Um, you know, and and it you know, I do think a crucial element of it is to highlight just how those powerful and nefarious forces have lied, mm-hmm. have lied, mm-hmm. have deceived. I think that's that's so important in making making the argument. Um, you know, how this stuff you know, interacts with politics, you know, it's always a question I come back to, that, you know, it's a big definition question about what politics is. You know, there is that Weberian dictum about it being the long, slow, boring of hard boards, mm. um, which I think those kind of stories allow you to have the energy and, and uh, to, to, to push through that. Mm. Um, but it does seem to me that, that one of the effects of these powerful and nefarious forces is to have eaten away... At uh, any sense of civic trust, mm, mm, uh, mm. Of, of political possibility, and maybe yeah. it plays into, and you mentioned alienation, which I think is is so important. It's you know. When I started reading seriously as a teenager, pick up these books in the local library, which thankfully, because you know, I became an adult at the wake after the wake of Thatcherism, yeah, yeah. you know, they hadn't been renewed for about twenty years, <laughs> so you had you know, all these great kind of you know you know mid late twentieth century books on alienation mm, as this kind mm, of a key key yeah, term, yeah, yeah. Um, and so so I wonder how you know how one can combat that because so, it se- it seems it seems so profoundly. Uh, definitional yeah. about our contemporary society. Yeah. Alienation, not just from 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 you know from 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 one's work, from the kind of mm. classic very narrowly construed Marxist sense of alienation, right? That you sell your labour and yeah. you know, et cetera, mm. et cetera. But the kind of sort of uh, humanist Marxist edifice that was built on top of it over the course of the 20th century, the sense that Mm -hmm. actually there's something about it that tells you something profound about our social condition and our psychological condition as well. What are the steps to start overcoming that?
1: Yeah, well, there's several ways in. So I'll, I'll talk very briefly about one of them which is something you can start tomorrow in your neighbourhood, which is creating participatory culture, creating much more of a sense of taking back ownership of, of your neighbourhood. Um, and as it happens, there's almost a science of this, which has been pulled together by this remarkable thinker, Tessie Britton, who herself is also an activist. is a classic sort of practice of mm-hmm. ideas and, and, and action, um, who uh, wrote this 400-page report for Lambeth Borough Um, which uh, looking at examples all around the world of successful community action transforming communities. And what she shows, and I've seen, I've just been recently in Holland and Belgium looking at some of the examples that she mentioned, among others, um, is that um, what you need to do is have a mixture of some of the sort of deep dive activities which require quite specialist people who are going to put a lot of commitment into it, but also low threshold low commitment activities classic example is eating together you know the etymology Mm. of the word companion companions with bread (laughs) bread. it's fundamental (laughs) fundamental to good fellowship eating together so you know this big lunch thing where Mm -hmm. everybody puts out the tables Uh, 18 million people did it last year you know all eating together in the street once, once a year but you know you can extend that into other areas too um and and what she found is that once you get about 10 to 15% of people involved in activities, you get this sudden coalescence and it just poof, go, it becomes the norm to be involved in community activity. And then what you've done there is create a sort of fertile seedbed for a lot of the other stuff which I'd like to see happening. One of them is participatory democracy. Mm. Classic example – being uh, what's going on in Reykjavik now with this uh, Better Reykjavik programme where basically the people run the city. It's really exciting. In the wake of the financial crisis, mm-hmm. you know, there's this recognition that everything we've been doing so far has been wrong. You, you know, it ripped Iceland apart. Yeah. Um, and, and we've got to just do this on a whole other basis. And so the Pirate Party and others, they set up this scheme whereby anyone in the city can put forward an idea for its improvement. The rest of the citizens vote on that idea. The top ones then get passed to the council, which um, has to either accept them or produce a really good reason, with all the sort of reasoning shown, for rejecting them. Which is crucial to trust. You mentioned mm, trust, mm, which mm. is absolutely essential to civic functioning, and people's trust in the system depends on having a really good reason for not doing it. You know that that's, that, that's um, it turns out to be amazingly important. And so successful has this been that two-thirds of the city's population are active participants, you know, running the city. Mm. So what you see there is a blending of participatory and representative democracy, which I think, think is exactly what we need. We have this crazy system at the moment where Theresa May will say, well, you elected me. ...last year, so I can do this. And we say, well, number one, I didn't elect you. (laughs) And number two, I I wouldn't ever have elected (laughs) you to do that. Which wasn't even in the manifesto. And had it been in the manifesto, I wouldn't even have read it... ...because everyone was talking about this and that instead. And this whole idea that we've got this presumed consent... ...this mandate arising from one cross, one day, on a piece of paper... ...which 30% of the population happened to put in one box... Therefore for the next 4 or 5 years we can do whatever the hell mm. we want. It's just insane. Has no way to run anything. I mean it, it, so there's... you mix it with the participatory yeah. system. And then things start to change in a big way.
0: Yeah, I just striking how how powerful the executive is in Britain. I don't think often people recognise, yeah. you know, that the fused system of government means that the executive, you know, mm. It, mm. is is astonishingly powerful when it wants mm. to be. Mm. There are, mm. you know, we've seen the occasional bit of parliamentary activity to yeah. to attempt to hold it to account. But frankly, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it's it, it, it's really striking. Now, now look, there's an argument that's often made that actually, if that were in the hands of the left. It could be a good thing Would
1: well like now you know i i'm really suspicious of that approach you know and i know Labour's very keen on first past the post because it wants to keep that concentrated power I think john MacDonald is uh, uh, uh yeah yeah um I, I haven't yet seen anything from corbyn yeah. in favor of, uh, of of proportional representation um but they are getting very keen on radical devolution which suggests an interest in participatory democracy. So things might be changing. Mm -hmm. Um, I live in hope with Labour, actually. I think there's a lot of interesting thinking going on there at the moment. Um, But, you know, that's just step two. Then there's also participatory economics, participatory Mm. budgeting of the kind that was pioneered in the Brazilian city of Porto Alegre. So it has transformative impacts when you basically give local people the infrastructure budget. You're going to decide. And, you know, at that height before it all got closed down by the massive... Um, reactionary backlash has been in Brazil. there were fifty thousand people a year setting the budget of that city, mm. and the health outcomes, the educational outcomes, transport, sanitation, clean water, all the rest of it, were just, just totally different to comparable Brazilian cities which weren't doing participatory budgeting because el- elsewhere p- politicians are just stuffing the money in their pockets or giving it to their mm. favoured mm. their brothers and their, um, you know, favoured cronies, and it was all corruption and clientelism. But suddenly, when the people are in charge of the budget, you, you know, something happened there which political scientists say is impossible, which is that people were marching in the street demanding that their taxes be raised. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if you think about it, you suddenly see why. So, so you know, so say you've got a transport problem. You, you, you need to get to work, but you live in a favela which is two hours away um, if you get into a traffic jam. Um, you, if you walk, it's four hours away, so you buy yourself a car. You tend spend $10,000 on a car, which is God knows how many years of mm. w- wages that you've earned. And you know, you're sitting in this traffic jam. It still takes you two hours to get to work. But if instead you can give $200 to the local government uh, as uh, to build a, a, a rapid mass transit public uh, system, a tram system or a trolley bus system or something, you're getting to work three times the speed you previously were on 1 50th of the amount of money. Well, why not spend this money publicly? It makes no sense to be hoarding it and trying to solve your, 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 your problem But privately. it
0: requires overcoming a cynicism about the possibility of a functioning public sphere. And
1: I what overcomes is, uh, the cynicism yeah. is the participation. Yeah. That's yeah. the key thing. You're absolutely right. You know, and when you say cynicism on one side, trust on the other side, to build trust and overcome cynicism, it's the people who have to be mm-hmm. in, in charge. So that's, just like, that's like step three, but then there's... Um, You know, we need to see, I think, a mass transfer of resources from the private sector into the commons Mm -hmm. sector, because previously we were talking, you know, we've got basically, we need to build alternatives to capitalism. And to my mind, the most exciting alternative is the commons. It's not communism, it's not capitalism. It exists in an economic sphere of its own. Mm -hmm. And it's completely neglected in political and economic discourse. Um, A a commons typically consists of a particular resource, which might be a piece of land, it might be a river, it might be some software, it might be a platform. Um, uh, It consists of the community, the very specific community, which... controls and manages that resource. And it consists of the rules and negotiations that community develops for that purpose. Um, The resource is inalienable, can't be sold, can't be given away. And either the resource itself or the product of that resource is divided equally among its members. And what this means is it tends to be far more sustainably managed than um, a resource in either the capital, uh, the private ca- capital system, or the state system, mm-hmm. which can be sold, given away, as we've yeah. seen. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's um, there's there's equality is built into it. Um, that sense of local trust, civic trust, is built into it as well. There's just incredible potential here. And I think land is mm. the thing to, to focus mm. on more than anything, you know, to to find mechanisms. And I'm, I, I unfortunately can't tell you about it at this stage, <laughs> because, but I'm working working on this a very interesting project um, of looking at how we can basically get land out of the private sector as much as possible, not all of it, but, you know, a lot of it, and into the mm. common sector. And there, I think that could be really transformative. But then even all that... Embed it in something bigger still which is the national political transformation and that's where the creation of these big proliferating political communities mm. come in through big organizing pioneered among others by the sanders campaign picked up then by the corbyn campaign at the last election with the result that it pulled off the biggest surprise in british democratic history um you know the the, the only argument among journalists but before that election was um is Theresa May going to win a 100-seat majority or a 120-seat majority? mm -hmm. That was literally the only argument. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and and, and we saw that complete turnaround caused by this big organizing model, which basically means jobs which staff would normally do, you hand to volunteers instead, you let them self-organize, you allow them to create more or less autonomous cells of organisation who then train the next wave, who train the next wave. So you've got this almost endlessly proliferating network of people who are given the really big jobs. It's not, you're not going to stuff envelopes, you're going to run the whole Mm. campaign. Mm. And there's going to be a bit of central steering going on saying these are our strategic aims, this is broadly how we're going to do it, but you're going to use your initiative and find ways of doing it. And, and what, you know, the organisers discover is that when you ask people to do something really small, people will do it grudgingly. You ask them to do something really big and they will throw their lives mm, into it. Mm. And, and the bigger the ask, the greater the commitment people will make.
0: I just want to spend our last few minutes, because one of the things you were talking about when you mentioned the commons is you know, specificities of community, um, things that are owned by a particular uh, you know, set of people. In common, I, and, and it brings up one of the questions. Always in your writing, I feel that there's a complex sense of a relationship to England, to the country, to mm. Englishness, maybe. And you talk a bit about rootedness uh, in, in the mm. book and that, that sense of belonging. And we're in a very strange moment, I think, where you know there, we have the rise of nationalist and xenophobic forces here. We have them, you know, worldwide as well. So I, I guess that that my my question is: How do you think? about the nation and how do you think about rootedness? Mm. How do you think about belonging Mm. while drawing the venom of exclusion and racism
1: out of it? Yeah, well, this is a really crucial question. It's very interesting, there's only two words which really cross the whole political divide and they are community and belonging. Just about everyone, whether they're on the left, the right, middle, will say, oh yeah, I like community, I like belonging. We might mean slightly different things by them, but at least there's a common language. At least, you know, given that most people are now floating voters, that people might have voted um, for for Obama and then for Trump and then for Sanders, you know, it's, it's, you know there's, there's huge um, swings taking place. We have to be able to talk a, a common language in some way. And those are the words that I would focus on. It's very interesting that both... Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine said almost identical things about the crucial role of community in politics, even though they hated each other's guts in every other respect. Um, And now the reason for this is that these are fundamental human needs, as fundamental as food and drink. We can't cope alone, which is why solitary confinement is such an effective form of torture. And the alternative to a generous inclusive belonging is a cruel exclusive belonging it's not no belonging at all Mm -hmm. it's fascism basically fascism is all about belonging you know it's a very coherent form of belonging you wear the same uniform you march to the same music you chant the same slogans it's belonging is what it offers as hannah arendt pointed Mm -hmm. out it's lonely people who are drawn to it and so we've got to create a much more attractive belonging A much more attractive sense of community because the alternative to doing that is the rise of fascism Mm
0: -hmm. I think that's uh, you know really striking and I I think you know it's it's really noticeable to me when I think about England I I, I'm reminded of something Raymond Williams says about you know crossing uh, England and seeing you know the enclosure and the history Mm. of England written in its nature, and I yeah. think... London, in the land. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's something the left often um, neglects. It feels we, we awkward forget. about it. Yes, we
1: do feel awkward about it, but, you know, why should Englishness belong to the right? you know, that we've got a fantastic radical tradition in this country. I mean, really, something to be really proud of. Mm -hmm. So much of the the, many of the radical ideas, which then spread across the world, a lot of them started here, you know, whether it's Hester Biddle, this incredible 17th century feminist, whether it was the diggers and the levelers, suffragettes. I mean, I'm not saying we were the only people doing (laughs) it by by any means. But, um, you know, there were There's a fantastic tradition here which we should be proud of and we should own and and we should say to ourselves, right, there is a form of English community and belonging which is ours and we're not going to let anyone else tell us that they own it and not us.
0: Hmm. I think that's a great place for us to leave it. November 17th uh, is the date in the diary for the Extinction Rebellion next Faye, George Monbiot, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks, James. Uh, and we will be back at the same time, in the same place. This has been Navara FM. I have been James Butler. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navara.media.com, As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.